0: Hey, it's good to see you. Uh, my name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here today. Hey, and if it's your first time, um, we are so excited that you are here. We know that it might be a little bit different for you stepping into a new church for the first time. Don't know all the songs, perhaps, don't understand what's going on, but we just are super excited that you are here. We know what it's like to be the first, to be, it's your first time at a church. And so, hey church, can we put our hands together and welcome people that it's their first time today and just saying, we're grateful that you're here. Um... So excited that you are here. Hey, if you've got a Bible, we're going to jump right in today uh, to First Peter chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab your Bible and open it. And we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2, um, verses 4 through 8, in our series called Set Apart. Somebody in the house say, set apart. Set apart. Set apart. Set apart. And we're walking through this series, through the book of First Peter, where we're trying to take a look and understand what it is like for us as Jesus followers to live in a hostile culture. For us to live in a culture that um, no longer um, accepts our ideas and our uh, thoughts and our practices as norm in the culture in which we find ourselves. And so today we are going to continue this series um, in uh, 1 Peter called Set Apart. My title for today is this, The Church is God's House. The Church is God's House. And I hope for the next few minutes, we will be able to see exactly what it means for us to be the house of God, for this to be the house of God, for where um, God would live and where he would dwell, and what it means when God is in his um, house. And so First Peter chapter 2, before we dive in, let me just say this. We're living in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile on a number of different fronts, specifically to Christianity, where um, your um, practices, where your beliefs, where your ideas as a Jesus follower are no longer the norm and are no longer acceptable, and uh, to even say that you are a Christian uh, no longer like gains you social status in culture, but rather actually prevents you from having social status and will actually push you to the margins. You walk around your workplace telling everybody that you're a Jesus follower, guess what happens? Who's the weirdo walking around talking about this Jesus guy? That's the world that we live in. And, and increasingly, what, what we see in our culture is um, this thing that's kind of happening. You may or may not have heard of it. it it's, called, it's called cancel culture. Anybody heard that yet? We're living in can- a cancel culture. It's really um, pervasive in, uh, among our teenagers. If you're a middle school or high school student today, you probably understand what I'm getting ready to say. But if you don't um, um, jive or if somebody doesn't like your ideas or your thoughts, or your perspective on something, you don't agree with their political persuasion, you don't agree with um, something that's happening in culture, the way that you're responding on social media, whatever, here's what happens. People just cancel you. I'm just done. Uh, we, we just completely canceled you off. This has happened all over the, the country, especially in schools, middle school and high schools, where groups of students, if someone in the group, in the party, in the clique per se, doesn't jive with what's happening with the group, they just cancel them immediately and put them outside of the group. It's cancel culture. What The reality is, is that if you are a Jesus follower, if you haven't already, you will be canceled. Right, you will be canceled because of what you believe and what you think and the way that you operate um, and the way that we live as Jesus followers. But here's the good thing. Um, Christianity for a, few, a couple millennia has thrived in the midst of hostile cultures. All right, so this is like nothing new. I mean, just, just that we actually, for maybe a few decades, got a little bit of a um, luxurious living in a country where uh, Christianity was kind of the norm, um, that, that isn't the norm of, for most of uh, church history. Most of church history, Christians get their heads cut off. That, that, that's like the norm. That's like, like, and even actually right now, in, in the Middle East, um, pastors today will get their heads cut off because they say they follow Jesus. Like, like, that's the norm. So we need to recognize that um, what we're stepping into in this cultural moment isn't anything like crazy, new, shocking. We've never seen this before. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond. It's, it's no, we, we do. And this is what Peter does. In the first century, Christians in the Roman Empire were experiencing the exact same thing. And so Peter writes to these believers to help them understand what it means to be a Jesus follower in the midst of this kind of culture. And the challenge that he's going to um, encourage us with is not to assimilate and compromise into culture and to give up in the midst of a hostile culture. And Peter shows us how to endure and how to hang in there even in the midst of intense um, Persecution and temptation. Now for Peter, as he has already shown us for the first um, couple chapters of the book, what Peter shows us is that it all comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. For Peter, the game changer, the thing that just changed the game forever was Jesus' resurrection. There's lots of ideas and perspectives and legends in the world today about Jesus and who he was, and he was a rabbi and the moral teacher, so on and so forth. At the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is whether or not Jesus resurrected. That's the only thing that matters, and, and Paul would even say that all of Christianity hinges on the resurrection, All of Christianity swings on the hinge of the resurrection. And if Jesus didn't rise from death, then he's just another spiritual guru. But if he did rise from death, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And for Peter, he had the benefit of knowing Jesus during his life um, and seeing his death and his resurrection. By the way, um, one of the ways, um, or one of the reasons why um, you can actually know most assuredly that Jesus rose from the dead is that Jesus wasn't the only self proclaimed messianic figure or mes- self proclaimed messiah of his day. From history, we, we actually know that there were literally dozens of other messianic movements during and around the first century. However, with every other um, one of those movements, um, they died the very moment the leader of that movement died. Everyone packed it up, went home. Once the followers realized that their leader was just an ordinary man, their hope was gone, and the movement was immediately snuffed out. However, the Jesus movement was the only one that actually grew exponentially after his death and would eventually transform the entire world, particularly the Roman Empire. Rodney Stark, the historian, um, he, he writes on the history of the early church and the early Christian movement. He demonstrates that there were hardly any Jesus followers um, at the time of his death. I mean, Jesus, he traveled around um, Palestine and, and, and some of the areas surrounding Jerusalem and Judea. Um, but when he died, there were literally just, just a handful of Jesus followers who were following him as the Messiah. But by the end of the first century... Uh, Rodney Stark demonstrates that there were a few thousand Christians in the Roman Empire, and then by the mid-fourth century, half of the entire Roman Empire were Christians. So how does that happen? How do a bunch of Galilean fishermen with no money and no political power and no military backing drum up enough gusto to change the entire world? The only reasonable, and I mean reasonable explanation, is that Jesus must have risen from the dead. And Peter experienced this resurrection firsthand, and he was a piece of work, (laughs) y'all. Some of you, like, look at your life, you look at this past week, and you're like, man, I'm just glad that I made it to church today. I mean, think about everything that you did and everything that you went through. You're just trying to keep your mess together. Peter was just with you. He's, He's with you right there. I mean, at Jesus' most needed moment, Peter bails on him. Peter over and over is failing Jesus. Um, And it's actually one of the ways that you know that the Bible is actually true and isn't a legend is because the Bible itself itself tells us that the early leaders of the Christian movement, they all acted like cowards and failed Jesus and bailed him at his most needed moment. Like, that's one of the reasons why you know that it's not a legend. Like, if you're writing a legend and you're trying to come up with, like, a great story to start a movement, you don't characterize all the first leaders of the movement as imbeciles. Like you just don't you don't write about yourself in that way if you're trying to conjure up a movement. The only reason it's in the Bible is because it actually happened. And so Peter, we need to recognize from the get go, he is one hundred percent convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. He just 100% can even saw Jesus, experienced Jesus, obviously, after his resurrection. And the Jesus followers that he's writing to believe the same thing, and they're experiencing a great deal of hostility and opposition and oppression, and they're beginning to wonder if it is worth it. And so let's turn our attention to the Scripture for today and see how Peter encourages us to hang in there, even in the midst of opposition and conflict. He says this, 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As, as you, meaning Jesus followers, Christians, as you, you and me, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, as we come to him, comma, Jesus, a, a living stone, saying, using an interesting metaphor here, Jesus, he was a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, Jesus would be rejected by every religious leader in his day. Religious leaders would send him to the cross, would crucify him. It was the religious establishment that killed Jesus. They would all reject him, but he would be chosen and precious in the sight of God. Which, by the way, if the world rejects you, isn't it a good thing to be chosen and precious in the sight of God? Regardless of what people say about you, regardless of what the people that are closest to you say about you, regardless of the people that criticize you and and reject you, um, it's amazing that um, you can still be chosen and precious in the sight of God. Verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. He's saying, you you guys, y'all are living stones too. You, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now you're starting to see the metaphor that he's giving us. You're like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. He's quoting Isaiah I'm laying as, uh, in, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, then he quotes the psalmist here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and then he quotes Isaiah again in verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, let me just break this down for you. You're like, what in the world is going on here? Living stone and cornerstone, and what role, role, uh, holy uh, priesthood? What, what exactly is going on here? You, what, what Peter would have been describing what, would have immediately like triggered ideas in in, in the early Christians. Like, when he would talk about living stones, I mean, all the early Christians that, that understood the Old Testament, they would, they would imagery would begin to come up in their mind. When he talks about holy, holy priesthood, Im- imagery would begin to come up in, in their mind. Talking about a spiritual house um, for God, this would immediately trigger ideas in the mind of these early um, Christians. What he's doing is he's using a metaphor to begin to talk about the church, God's house. So, in the Old Testament... Um, After God's people would um, sin and would rebel against him and would eventually be um, held in bondage in Egypt, God would deliver his people from Egypt and he would begin to establish in them a new nation, a new kind of people for himself. And as they are ex- the exodus, as they are exiting what was their previous life and they're stepping into what God would have for them in the wilderness journey and in the promised land, he begins to establish for them what it looks like for us to be the people of God. He begins to weave in imagery. He begins to incorporate the law. He begins to incorporate other um, ceremonies and processes of what it means to be the people of God. God would instruct his people during the season of the wilderness to build for himself a tabernacle. A tabernacle, the Hebrew word there is tent. To build a tabernacle for him, which would be the precursor of what would eventually become a temple. So Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, we see this. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary, God says, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. This is this tabernacle that they're supposed to build, that they're supposed to erect, that's going to be the dwelling place for God. It's also referred to in the Old Testament as the tent of meeting, or the tent of the Lord, or the tent of testimony. During the Exodus period, this tabernacle would function as a portable sanctuary that would move with God's people for a few decades until they reached the promised land. And so the tabernacle really functioned um, as the heart and the center of the people of God. It was a big deal. It was a really big deal for them. It functioned as the heart and the center of the people of God. It was the dwelling place of Yahweh, of God himself. It was the house of God. It was the symbol of God's presence and his power among his people. It was a place where he communicated with his people. It was a place where sacrifice and mediation happened between God and his people. It was a place of union and fellowship with God. It was the center of operation for the spiritual leadership of God's people, the priests, The tabernacle had a gate that you would walk into the tabernacle area and there would be an outer court and the outer court had an altar where you would um, offer burnt offerings as well as a laver that would be used for cleansing. In the outer court, then the tabernacle, um, inside the tabernacle was called the holy place where there was a table of bread of presents. There was also a golden lampstand. There was an altar of incense and then separating the holy place from the holy of holies was a curtain or a veil and inside the holy of holies rested the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And here's what Peter is saying. He's using that language. He's using this Old Testament idea of the temple of God and the house of God. And he's saying that that temple, that tabernacle, was designed to point to a future temple, a different temple, a better temple, a temple not made with physical stones and structures, but a spiritual temple. And that new temple is us. It's us. Like, you're like, I just thought I was coming to church today. Then, like, I mean, like, no, we, like the church of God, like the the community of God, you and I are nothing less than the new temple of God, the new temple of God. And we are like living stones in that temple, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, which means this is God's house. I'll, I'll say it this way. The church is God's new house. The church is. You and me, the people of God. We're, we're, we're the new house of God. We are God's new temple. We're the new tabernacle. We are collectively. We make up God's house. I love what Karen Jobes, the commentator, says. She says, Now the church, not a literal stone building, Is the place of God's earthly dwelling by the Holy Spirit a place of true worship and of acceptable sacrifice? We're living stones. Now, the question then is how do you become a living stone in this house of God? How do you become a part of this? How do you become a living stone in this new temple of God? And Peter tells us that those who are living stones are those who have been built on the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Now, In in architecture, back in the day, uh, the way that we build houses and structures, if you're a contractor, I'm not like hating on you, but the way that we build houses today, like they might last for a few decades, they might last for a hundred years, perhaps, maybe. The way that they would build structures way back in the day, like huge stones, heavy stones that were designed to last for hundreds of years. Anybody ever been to Europe or somewhere into the Middle East and you've seen the, the old structures and the buildings there that have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years? Back in the day, the way that you would build a structure is you would begin with the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone um, isn't just like uh, something fancy to put in the wall so that you can put the date of when the structure was built. Back in the day, in architecture, it was actually necessary for the entire structure. So the cornerstone had to be the strongest stone. It had to be the straightest stone. You would literally put it at the, at the base, at the foundation of the corner, and its lines needed to be straight because it would, it, it would draw the line for every other stone. Every other stone would have its dimensions based on that cornerstone. You would use it for the direction of every other stone. So you you would use it um, uh, horizontally, and then you would use it vertically, and it would become the cornerstone that would set the dimensions for the entire structure. And the metaphor that is used is that Jesus is the cornerstone in God's house. He is the cornerstone. So I'll say it this way. Everything in God's house finds its center in Jesus. Jesus everything, like everything in God's house finds its center in Jesus. What Peter says is that the, that one can accept Jesus as the cornerstone or either reject him. And using a construction analogy, he's mimicking what like a stonemason would do. Either the stonemason takes the stone and uses it in the structure or the mason disregards the stone because it's not worthy enough for the structure. And Peter even preached this truth to these religious leaders about Jesus, the chief priest, and his followers in Acts 4. and says this, Acts 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus, this is Peter saying this in Acts 4. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's what he's saying. Everything is centered on Jesus and everything is built on him. Now, why? Why is Jesus such a key factor for being a part of God's house? Well, here's why. The only way that you and I actually get entrance into God's house, into God's presence, is through Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus came, he lived the life that you and I should have lived, that we couldn't. Then he died the death that we should have died, and then he conquered the grave that we couldn't conquer. Jesus Christ did. Jesus, he, he is the, he's the, new, he, he's the new priest. He's the great high priest. To go back to the temple analogy, the, the high priest once a year on the day of atonement would go into, as a symbol and as a metaphor, he would go into the holy of holies by himself, had to be clean, had to be pure, and he would offer sacrifice there, before God in the Holy of Holies for the atonement for the sin of all the people. It was a metaphor, it was a picture. And if God accepted that sacrifice and the blood of that sacrifice, then God would forgive and atone for the sins of all of God's people. That was pointing to Jesus. Jesus on the cross proverbially was walking into the Holy of Holies. And Jesus would sacrifice himself, God the Son, for you and me, to atone for the sins of the world. The only way that you get the presence of God, that you get in the house of God, is through Jesus. It's, it's the only way. You can try hard, try to be a good person, try to clean up your life, try to stop doing the bad things that you are doing. You can try, you can try different perspectives, you can try different ideologies, you can try different religions, you can tr- try different paths, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Either Jesus atones for your sin with his blood or you atone for your sin with your blood. That's the only options. And so Jesus here is the cornerstone that gives us access as the people of God into the house of God. Now what you do with Jesus is the most important thing you will ever do. Either you believe in him and you receive him or you disobey and reject him. Some of you are like, well, Ethan, this sounds pretty exclusive. I mean, we live in like a pluralistic society, right? I mean, Aren't there a lot of ways to God? I mean, there's different ideas out there. I mean, Jesus wasn't the only prophet. Jesus wasn't the only religious leader. Other people said that they had the way. I mean, isn't, a little bit, isn't it a little bit judgmental to say that um, only Jesus is the way to God? This is the scandalous nature of the gospel in a pluralistic society. It was exactly the same in the first century pluralism posits that there is more than one valid religion and that no single religion has the monopoly on truth and it asserts that there are many paths up the same mountain and ultimately so the claim goes we'll all meet at the top in our respective journeys in our respective spiritual journeys just judgmental and bigoted to say that there's only one way to God. Surely there's different ways and different paths to God. So people in a pluralistic society, I've said this before, it's kind of the analogy that is used. Imagine there were three blind men that stumbled onto an elephant. Well, each of the blind men, they stumble onto the elephant. One of them grabs the trunk and he says the elephant is like, it's round and it's Tall and it's solid and, and it's strong. And, and that's what the elephant is like. Well, then the other blind man, he grabs the trunk of the elephant and he says, no, the, the, the elephant is actually very, it's it's small and it's kind of flexible and movable. That's what an elephant is like. The other blind man, he comes up to the side of the elephant and he, he feels this. He said, no, the, an elephant is, is very, it's actually kind of flat and hard and, and it's large. And that that's what an elephant is like. And so the narrator would go on to say, see, none of the blind man had the whole truth of understanding the elephant. Um, They only had a part of it and each of them were right and each of them were wrong. Therefore, no one should say that they understand the whole truth. Here's the problem with the analogy. The narrator is making the case that the narrator sees the whole elephant and understands the whole truth. I mean, it's, so, so the question, is it not, we shouldn't have spiritual truth claims, we recognize that everyone has a spiritual truth claim, just recognizing which one is actually true, is, is the most important thing. We shouldn't, as Christians, retract back from the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord of the world, and he's the only hope. We should never retract from that. When we retract from that, we're actually robbing ourselves of the actual power of God. Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek, to everybody. When we start to go gospel light, we're actually robbing ourselves of the power of God. It doesn't do anyone justice to say, a lot of different ways out there, you pick the one that's right for you. Did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Now, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to go here. There's a tendency among us to have what some people call a um, therapeutic, moralistic deism. The idea is we like the thought of God, we like to believe in God, we like insights about God, we even think that we want to make ourselves good people and to be moral people because that is what God is like and if we can live morally and if we can try to have a good life then perhaps God will accept us and our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds and we'll be fine and so just every now and then think about God, show up to church, maybe say a prayer, make sure that you do your taxes right, try not to lie, try not to commit adultery, just be a good person and you will be fine. That's therapeutic moralistic deism. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that you and I are destined for hell. And apart from Jesus' blood dripping from his body on the cross, you and I are destined for hell. Amen. And unless we put our faith and trust in Jesus and who he is, we can never know God. Amen. Like, well, that's kind of judgmental. That's the way that God set it up. Like, take it up with God if you don't like that. That's the way that He designed it. It was His idea. And so I think there's a tendency for us to, we're just gonna kinda go gospel light, you know? Can we just sing songs about God? Do we have to have songs where it talks about the cross? Can we just take that part out of there? That's a little bit gruesome, Ethan. I mean, we really teaching kids that? I mean, we really talking about blood to our kids? I mean, that's, can we just talk, can we just talk about love and happy thoughts and. No, Amen. we can't because eternity is on the line. And either you stand on Christ as the cornerstone or you reject it and you're not a part of the structure at all. So, Jesus, and, well, Peter, rather, he, he says, We are living stones. I love the way that Leonard Goppelt says it. Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or another stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of one's creator and redeemer, and thereby of one's destiny." You have to make a choice. You have to make a decision. Is Jesus who he said he is or is he not? So we are God's house. What does that mean? We are God's house. Jesus is the cornerstone. You and I are living stones in the house of God. This is the new temple of God. So what does this mean? Three things. If you've got a pen, if you've got your, got your phone, I want you to jot these three things down. Here's the first thing that this means for us. God's house is where you find his people. God's house is where you find his people. We are followers of Jesus, Christians, believers. I prefer followers of Jesus. We are the people of God on the earth. You and I are the people of God. You and I, this, this means we are God's house. This we're, we're God's people in the earth. The church. The, this is us follower of Jesus, on Jesus, the cornerstone, you and I are God's house. Now, what does this mean? If, if we are stones, let, let's use a metaphor a little bit. If we're, if we're living stones in the house of God, then what do, we, what do we know about stones? What do we know about living stones? What is Peter trying to get us to understand about the kind of structure that the people of God is, are supposed to be? The first thing I would say is interdependence. It's like a big word. Interdependence, which means everyone in the church is dependent on one another. Like there's, there's a tendency we live in an unbelievably like individualistic society in, in America where it's just me and Jesus and my own, um, me and my own faith, and, and I don't really need the church, I don't need pastors, I, I just need me and, and Jesus. If we're living stones, a stone doesn't do any good on its own, in the middle of the yard by itself. A stone only finds its meaning and its purpose when it's actually in the structure. And every stone is actually dependent on all the other stones. You begin to take stones out, what happens? It's Jenga. The whole thing falls down. We're living stones, which which means there needs to be an an interdependence um, of everyone in the church and to recognize that everyone is important and that everyone matters in the church. You're here today and you're like, I don't matter. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not on staff. I'm not an elder. I'm not this. I'm not whatever. You matter to the church. We need you. Like, you are a part of this thing. You are a living stone in this structure. We, we need as many stones as possible. We need every stone. We don't need stones just like scattered in the yard. Let's get a part of this thing, all right? Let's be a part of this thing. Let's be interdependent. I love what one commentary, uh, commentator says. The imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual cannot be realized apart from the community with other believers, Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. That's why we do community groups, y'all. Like understanding what it means to be a Jesus follower, understanding what it means to be a human, understanding the way that God designed us and wired us to be interpersonal in our relationships. This is why we do community groups. This is why we ask everybody to be in a community group. Um, because you, you need to be a part of a structure. You need to be uh, connected to others. You need to have relationships with, with others. You need to be tied in with, with others. Uh, we know that the rea- reality is that if someone comes to a church and they may stick around for a few months, but if they don't actually get into meaningful community and meaningful relationships, they'll be gone out the back door. See, the reality is that you've got to be connected in relationships. We need you. Everybody needs you. It, there's this inter- a dependence that we must have together. And then as well, purpose. If we're living stones in the structure of God's house, that gives us purpose and meaning and really security in the church community. I love what um, another commentator says. Even when we find ourselves alienated from our society and suffering a loss of status, Peter assures us that we have become part of a much grander and everlasting community. It is by the values and convictions of this new community that we must now understand ourselves. Not as self-centered individuals, but as each taking his or her place in the spiritual house. I love this. We find our purpose. We find our meaning. We find our identity in here. And this is where our, our Asian brothers and sisters at the bridge and our Indian brothers, brothers and sisters at the bridge get this way better than we do. Like in America, you, um, in Western society, meaning and identity and purpose and happiness in your life is determined by the individual. But in Eastern, more traditional societies, meaning, purpose, identity is defined not by the individual, but by the whole, by the group. You can only find your meaning and purpose in as much as you are a part of the group. We flipped it the other way in Western society. No, you need to be free. You need to find yourself. You need to discover yourself. You need to express yourself. You you, you need to go find you. And I understand that we go through hard seasons and situations where oftentimes the people that are around us seem to turn on us and you feel like there's a season that you might need to find yourself. But but I'm here to tell you today, you were designed for community. You were made for relationships. You were made to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You will never find your purpose, meaning, and identity on your own. It happens with people that are around you. We're living stones in the structure. As well, order. Order. Living stones in in, a, in God's house, in a structure, in, in the wall. Living stones are ordered, aren't they? They're set precisely in order in relationship to the cornerstone. It's not in disarray. I love what a commentator says on this. Notably, these living stones are not lying about in idle isolation or disorder. They're not heaped in a pile or scattered across a field. Christians are each put in place in a spiritual house for a specific purpose. There's order to us there's order to the way in which we operate and then this one as well diversity and unity you know no two stones are exactly the same those no two stones are identical every stone in god's house is a little bit unique is a little bit different you got your own shapes and sizes right you got your own peculiar peculiarities how do you say that word you have your own uniqueness about you you know and you pick on people around you and in your community group about the difference that they are. It's a good thing that they're different. Praise God, everyone isn't like you or like me, right? If everyone was like me, this would be a boring ride, y'all. This would be boring. Like it's good that every stone is every stone is is different. Every stone has its own makeup. It's it's actually its own color, its own shape, its own size. Commentator says this, the image of living stones being built into a spiritual house whose cornerstone is Christ also speaks of the unity, significance, and purpose of all believers. Concepts essential for Christian self-understanding. Y'all know why we don't gossip, by the way? Y'all know why we don't like do division and stuff? Why that's like off limits at the bridge? Well, it's because of scripture, first of all. Uh, But that's off limits. Like we don't even go there. Like as elders, as staff, then as leaders, and then as members. We just, we just don't go there. Like, why, why, would, why would one stone in the wall speak negatively about another stone in the wall? It just doesn't make sense, right? It's like, why, 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 why am I, like, causing division between the other stones that are in the wall? Like, no, I need them. They are a part of me. I am a part of them. That's, that's why we don't do that. There's unity. Unity. Y'all know there's there's nothing in the world like the people of God. Do y'all know that? There's nothing like us, y'all. There is nothing in the world like us. Show me a fraternity. Show me a sorority. Show me a rotary club. They may have some good things about them, but there is nothing like God's church. There's nothing like this. We're the people of God, and we're living stones built in his structure. Amen? Nine o'clock. Y'all are a little quiet this morning for some reason. I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm going to preach longer if you don't give me a little encouragement. I need some help. So first of all, first of all, God's house is where you find his people. God's house is where you find his people. Here's the second one. God's house is where you find his presence. This is where it's going to get real good. God's house is where you find his presence. We are, we are the presence of God on the earth. That that doesn't mean that God can't show up in another place and do something miraculous in another place or have his presence revealed. But but God's primary means of his presence in the earth is his church. It's God's house. If we are God's house, if we are God's temple, then we should recognize that right here, right now, God dwells in our midst. We got to stop this stuff like I'm just showing up to sing a song and to get a good sermon and try to get a little pick me up for the week. Like, I love songs, I love sermons, I spend a lot of time on them, but we're coming here because the presence of God is here, y'all. When we are collected together, when we are here, there is something unique about the presence of God in this place. It isn't because of the concrete, it isn't because of the walls, it isn't because of the lights or the technology, it's because of you and me, and we're God's house, It means his presence is here. That means God is showing up here in a unique way, unlike he is a hundred yards that way. There is something unique about when we gather together like this. Something special, something powerful. And God designed this tabernacle and this temple in the Old Testament to point to you and me. That that's where I want to dwell. I want to make my dwelling place among men. And he does that here. We are God's house, we are where you find God's presence. Paul would even say it explicitly clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See the metaphor? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Could he be any more clear? You and I, we're being joined together. We are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. You and I are being built together for a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Which means God is here. Like, I don't feel it, Ethan. Just seems like, you know, seems like any other building in Wilmington. I don't feel it. I love the song, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Here, here, here's the reality is that you and I have to be tapped into what God is doing here. You can come in here filled with the world, filled, filled with your fear, filled with all these other ideas, not connected to God, not to connect to the spirit, and you probably won't feel anything. But God is here. Like, he designed this. Like, worship, like, this this, this whole deal, like, this was intentional by God because he wanted to have a dwelling place for himself amongst his people. God is here. What if we stopped treating the church like it was a a place primarily for programs, and started treating it like it was a place primarily for the presence of God. I like programs, by the way. I get paid to do programs. I mean, I, I'm a big fan, I'm like Bridge Kids and ministries, and this is technically a program. I mean, we're in the sense of this is an organized gathering that we're doing together as God's church. But what if we stopped treating the church primarily like it was a place of programs? And there's a place of the presence of God. You know, know, when we, when we, when I talk with our team and I talk with our our band and our staff and our leaders, I'm like, y'all, let's be prepared. Let's do well. Let's do a good job. Psalm 33 says, play skillfully with your instrument that God has given you. There's something good about doing things well. Be prepared. Um, But we're not going for production. Like We're not just hoping that the light will just cross someone's face at the right moment and the electric guitar will strum on the G chord on the number one in the place where there will be ecstatic emotion in the place. I actually like that, by the way. But, <laughs> But what we're going for is to be a conduit for the presence of God to come in this place and to move. And you 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 strum a chord. You you open God's word. You preach. You you do whatever you do because you're trying to be a conduit for the presence of God to come in this place and to move, and to touch us where we need to be touched. God is here. This is about the presence of God. Can I just ask you a question as well? Um, This is a little weird because you're here. Um, Do you prioritize the the gathering of God's people? You showed up on the right Sunday, by the way, because you're here. Do we prioritize the. Man, I got. Man, we just. Is it, there's a tournament, and then there's a wedding, and I'm out of town this weekend, and I just got to travel this weekend. You know what? We, we might, we may or may not get. And I'm, I know you're like, is he giving me a guilt trip right now? I travel some. I have to be here on Sundays. I travel some on the weekends. My family is actually traveling this weekend. They're, they'll be back later this afternoon for the 4 o'clock worship gathering. I understand what's just a little pastoral encouragement and caution like, let's make sure that we make the gathering of God's people a priority because we're coming to worship and to experience His presence and to connect with Him and He wants you to be here. Not so, not so we can grow a big church. I, I mean, I gave up on that a long time ago. I mean, but because you need it. Not because I need it, but because you need it. Do you you prioritize the gathering of God's people in, in community? You're so busy. So many things going on. One night. One night at ball practice. One night here. Working late. One night showing up to a meeting. Showing up to this and that. And it's like, by the like, is there any intentionality with, like, even your, your week and your time? And are you putting yourself in and around the community of God's people, being filled up in that? And is that a priority for you? It's like, oh, I kind of get to it. I might get to it. You need it. You need it. Because God's house is where you find his presence. And then here's the final one not only is God's house where you find his people and his presence, but God's house is where you find his power. God's house is where you find his power. I don't know if you know this or not, but we are the power of God on the earth. The temple was the center, was the central locus point of the power of God in his presence in the Old Testament You and I, we are the center of God's presence here and now in the world. The church, believers, changed by the gospel, in community, living together. That's where the power of God is. A couple verses from Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 43. And they, speaking of the early Jesus followers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, which means community and relationships, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And guess what? All came upon every soul, like wonder, like amazement. That's what I get so fed up about sometimes. You know, I'm like, where's the all in my life? Where, where, where's the amazement in, in, in my life? Like, am, am I really about the things of God? Am I really pursuing the things of God? Is there, is there a sense of awe in my life? Does my family, does my marriage have a sense of awe about what we see and what we know about God? All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What are wonders and signs? Those are miracles. Like miracles are happening. Through the apostles and through others. You know why it calls it a sign? A sign um, on the side of the road tells you about something else, right? It points to something else that's coming. The signs, the miracles that happened in the early church, the, the amazing miracles were signs of the gospel, Like accompanied with the preaching of the gospel throughout the entire book of of Acts are miracles, are signs. You're like, what kind of miracles are you talking about, Ethan? I'm talking like people getting healed, people getting delivered, cities being changed, towns being changed, families being changed, systems and structures being changed in society. Preaching of the gospel and then signs and wonders came and all filled the whole place and, and amazement happened. And then here's another one, Acts 4.31 This is actually at the end of Peter preaching to the chief priest. And this is what happens. The church gets together and they pray. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was what? Shaken. You're like, well, surely that's metaphorical. No. The seats were shaking. The walls were shaking. The ceiling was shaking. Why? Because of an earthquake? No, because of the presence of God and the power of God in the place. Well, Ethan, I don't believe in that. Well, you're in the wrong place, all right? All right this, is, this is the place of power in the world. The whole place has changed. They, they, gathered, they gathered together. The place was shaken. They were all filled with what? The Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with, with boldness. Um... By the way, I don't think we pray enough. Just honestly, as a pastor, like one of the things that I'm called to do is the ministry of the word and prayer, Acts chapter six. That's what I'm supposed to be devoted to just in complete confession. I don't know that I'm doing that extremely well um, for us as a church, Um, but these people prayed, they got together, um, they, they, they prayed together and like God showed up. That's a great strategy for church, by the way, right? Um, So these believers, they prayed and God showed up. They made themselves available to God and to the Holy Spirit. and, And God just showed up and moved. And so I think we need to recognize that God's house is where his presence is, where his people are and where his power is. Our job is not to manufacture power. You're not supposed to go to community group this week and be like, this is going to be powerful. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to manufacture it, but we're supposed to, this is supposed to be a place where there's power, where power happens. Paul would tell us in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And So here's what I want to do um, as we end today. I hope this sermon, honestly, is a catalyst that brings us into a new sense and a new level um, as a church of understanding the power of God and the presence of God in our church. Um, This isn't just any sermon for me. This is one of those that I hope is going to be a significant catalyst for us for years to come. I think we need to step into recognizing that we need to be about power power of God. We need to be about the presence of God. We don't just need to be about production and programs and politics in the church or playing games, but we need to be about the power of God in this place. And we need to have a a new devotion to prayer and to seeking the Lord for what he wants. I'm convinced that sermons aren't going to change the city. I'm convinced that the power of God is what's going to change the city and his presence here is what's going to do it through you and me. So here's the pattern the early church. The pattern that I see in the book of Acts, it's boldness with the gospel, unapologetically declaring the truth of the gospel in a pagan, hostile culture. Boldness. The second part of the pattern I see is unity and fellowship. The church is locking arms together for the sake of the mission in the kingdom. They're unified. They're in fellowship. They're in relationship together. And then I see prayer immense dependency on God to do what only he can do depending on him and then this is the results that you see after that fullness of the spirit all among the church lives change through signs and miracles salvation spreads and cities are changed and the Roman Empire which would have 60 million people by the 4th century was half Christian because of the spread of the gospel St. Augustine the Actually, 4th century early church father, he says this. Christianity must have reproduced itself by means of miracles. For the greatest miracle of all would have been the extraordinary extension of Christianity apart from any miracles. The only way that it actually happened is because of miracles. It would have been miraculous for it to happen without it. That's the only way that it happened.